morning. Our reading this morning is from Mark chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. He was amazed at their lack of faith. This is the word of God. Thank you, Dennis. Let's pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, our rock and redeemer. Amen. A young woman named Ellie Purrier St. Pierre grew up in Richford, and she showed a lot of talent as a runner. So through high school, uh, she excelled in, in running, and then she went to the University of New Hampshire and won several NCAA titles, championships, including um, the gold medal in 2018 for the one mile. Um, after college, she was sponsored by New Balance and went on to professional running, racking up victories until she eventually qualified for the Olympic team. You probably remember in, in 2021 in, in Tokyo, the Summer Olympics, Ellie Purrier St. Pierre, I guess she was just Ellie Purrier at that point, um, represented Vermont, Richford, Vermont, in the Olympics in Tokyo. And while she didn't get a place on the podium, she placed 10th in the one mile, no, in the 1500, which is not bad for a girl from little old Richford, Vermont. Now, when she came home, they had a uh, homecoming victory parade for her. So she walked down Main Street behind a red and white heifer draped with an American flag, and the fire trucks were going, and the people were waving and cheering her on. She made her way to the podium and, and gave a speech in which she talked about what an honor it was to represent her town and her state and her country on the world stage. She was a hometown hero. Now, Jesus also grew up in a small town, in a blue-collar town called Nazareth. He went on to achieve popularity and fame and renown, but when he returned to his hometown... After becoming this hugely popular teacher and healer, he did not get a welcome back parade. In fact, people were skeptical and suspicious, and it says they took offense to him. They said, there's no way I can accept that Jesus, this, this guy that we know, is some big prophet, prophet of God. How can that be? Well, this morning, I want to talk about why that was the case. Why did the people that knew Jesus for the longest 
believe in him the least. Uh, why wasn't he a hometown hero? And the, answers, the answer to those questions is important because I believe we just may need to be offended by Jesus before we can grasp what the gospel really is. So very simply today, I want to answer two questions. Number one, why were the people of Nazareth offended by Jesus? And number two, why might we need to be offended by him in order to really grasp the gospel? Two-point sermon. You're in luck. So why were the people of Nazareth offended? We're told in Mark chapter 6 that Jesus went to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, he was in Capernaum. This was about 25 miles southwest of Capernaum, a small village in a rocky hilltop of a few hundred people. Um, and he's not going for just a family visit. He's bringing his disciples, we're told, um, which means this is a learning opportunity for them. Now, verse 2 says, When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. So far in the story, we've seen that wherever Jesus goes, amazement is the natural, uh, uh, natural consequence. People are amazed at the authority of his teaching. They're amazed at the power of his miracles. They're amazed at, at the way he answers questions. They wonder, what kind of a man is this? In the last chapter, what Jesus spoke to the weather and it obeyed him, and the disciples said, what kind of a man is this? But in Nazareth, the amazement has a different flavor. Because they're not asking, what kind of a man is this? They think they already know what kind of a man Jesus is. They're like, this is the kid I babysat. This is the kid I went to Sabbath school with. This is the guy who, who built my house. This is the guy who, who laid foundation stones next to me as we labored out in the field. And now he's coming here as some big shot, some famous miracle-working rabbi. No way. You can hear best in verse 3 kind of the incredulity of their, of their questions. It says, where did this man get these things? What, wisdom has been, what is this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Now that word offense, the term he, they took offense is important. That shows up, I think, eight or ten times in the Gospel of Mark. And it basically means something that prevents someone from having faith. Like something you trip over. Or an idea you can't swallow. Or something you think, that just can't be right. You take offense at it. You, you, you reject it. Um, in this case, the idea they just can't swallow is that this hometown boy is a, a famous miracle-working prophet. Now, we have to have a little sympathy for them. I mean, put yourself in their shoes. Up until a few months, maybe, before this happened, or maybe up to a year, Jesus was just a regular guy working construction 
living in Nazareth. There's nothing to indicate. In fact, this response shows us that he didn't do miracles. He wasn't some uh, famous person before his baptism and ministry started, right? Apparently, there is nothing out of the ordinary about him except for the rumors of his illegitimate birth. But people were willing to overlook that, right? He was just a regular, God-fearing, hard-working tradesman from this little village of Nazareth. So you can imagine their skepticism and amazement when suddenly here he comes with people following him and hanging on his every word and calling him rabbi and bringing rumors that he has driven out demons and healed the sick and even raised the dead. Like, what happened? Right? What happened to the Jesus we knew? Despite living with him for almost 30 years, because he spent the first couple years in Egypt and then they went back to Nazareth, despite living with him for that long, or maybe because of it, they thought, this just can't be. God could not work like this through someone so ordinary. Right? You could hear people whispering things like, yeah, he may draw crowds in Capernaum, but we know who he really is. He can't fool us. He doesn't really have the credentials. He didn't study under a rabbi. He isn't the son of a priest or a king or a prophet. He, uh, he's a construction worker. He grew up here in Nazareth where nothing important happens. He's just Mary's kid. He's just Joseph's son. Uh, we, besides, if the rumors are true, he was maybe born out of wedlock. So at this point, Jesus could have tried to correct them. He could, I suppose, have done something dramatic to get their attention. He could have given a speech about how he indeed was the Messiah, and here's why. He could have dazzled them, but he, he doesn't. He simply bears the rejection of these people, his former friends and neighbors and even siblings, and that must have been painful to have these people that have known you their whole life and suddenly, your whole life, and suddenly they are scoffing at you, rejecting you. So Jesus quotes a common proverb of the day. Jesus didn't make this proverb up. It was well known in this day that a prophet is not without honor except in his own town, among his relatives, and in his own home. Right? Familiarity breeds contempt. The better you know something, the less you uh, see what's special about it. Now, in the previous chapter, we met these two people, Jairus and the woman who had the bleeding problem. And they had so much faith that they were willing to risk everything just, to, just hoping that Jesus would help them. But here in Nazareth, it's the opposite. People aren't even willing to consider that he could do a miracle, and therefore he does not. It says, he was not able to do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. It's like Jesus is honoring their unbelief and their rejection and their stubborn hearts, their faithlessness. 
And this leads to another kind of amazement. Jesus being amazed at their lack of faith. Jesus was like, I knew that they would have a hard time accepting me, but this is worse than I thought. <laughs> These people are, are so unwilling to believe. He was surprised by their level of skepticism and disbelief. So that's why the people of Nazareth were offended by him. Because God couldn't work through someone we know so well, some ordinary person. Now, why might we need to be offended also by Jesus before we can have true faith in him? Well, it turns out this passage can help us understand the bigger picture of the gospel. And here's how. Jesus being rejected here by his hometown is not just an isolated incident in the gospel story. Um, turns out almost everybody around Jesus ends up either hating him and rejecting him or being deeply disappointed in him and falling away, right? Everybody. Um, that's because Jesus came in a way that did not fit human expectations. They were looking for a Messiah to come on a war horse, but they got one who came on a donkey, they were looking for a, a savior to restore the glory of the nation of Israel, and instead they got one who called himself a servant. They were looking for a king on a throne, but they got a king on a cross. They couldn't accept it. That's why Judas betrayed him. That's why the Pharisees and chief priests wanted him gone. That's why... His, the crowds turned on him. That's why his own disciples abandoned him, because he did not fit. He was the stumbling stone, the stone the builders rejected. People tripped over him. You know, two chapters after this passage is this, the story when Jesus asks his disciples, who do you think that I am? Who do you say that I am? Peter works up the nerve to say, I think you're the Messiah, right? That must have taken courage for him to say that. But then Jesus proceeds, proceeds to define his messianic work, his role, what it means to be the Messiah. It's at Mark 8.31 says, Jesus then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day rise again. Now when he said this, Peter, who had just called him the Messiah, said, No way! There's no way that's going to happen to you. Right? He could not accept that. He was offended by the idea that his Messiah would have to suffer and die and be rejected. Not only did Jesus die, but he died on a cross which was the most humiliating, embarrassing, shameful thing anyone could imagine at that time. To be killed on a cross, to be crucified, was to be made into like human garbage. To be, to be set like, to be, have your humanhood canceled, your humanity taken away from you. 
to be made a mockery of, to be shown as worthless and nothing. That's what crucifixion was designed to do. Not just to painfully kill someone, but to make a public mockery of that person um, for all to see. So the idea of, uh, of crucifixion and Messiah were like oil and water. They just did not go together for, for the Jewish mind. And so as the gospel was first preached throughout the world, the Roman world, it was a truly scandalizing message, a shocking message. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to bring salvation. Now, why would he say that he is not ashamed of the gospel? Why would he have to say that? Because many people considered it a scandalizing, shameful message. For Jews, it was offensive that God would ever allow his anointed one to be rejected and killed and suffer the indignity of a crucifixion. For Greeks who wanted sophisticated arguments and reasoning, it seemed foolish to be talking about a peasant Jewish man nailed to a cross. What, what does that have to do with anything, right? Right? To this day, Muslims are taught that Jesus did not die on the cross. They believed he was some kind of a prophet, but at the last minute, God switched him with a body double because God would never allow one of his prophets to be treated that way and to die. It just does not make sense. But here's the thing. Jesus' rejection and humiliation and the offensive message that that was is baked into the gospel message. The gospel is about God's Son being rejected for us and suffering for us. The amazing, unfathomable wisdom of God was that His only Son, the Messiah, had to suffer and die, had to be disgraced, that he came first not to conquer his enemies, but to die for his enemies. That he came to be rejected so that when we believe in him, we could be accepted into the heart of God. He came to bear all of the disgraceful, sinful, ugly stuff in us so that we could be cleansed and forgiven. That's right at the heart of the gospel message is the, the logic of rejection and of God, of Jesus being rejected. And that can be an offensive message to this day. Have you ever been offended by Jesus or by the gospel? Some people are offended by the simplicity of the gospel. They're like, I just can't accept that it's that simple. You can just ask for forgiveness from God and, and because Jesus died on a cross, you can be forgiven. I can't believe that. Some people are offended by the violence of the gospel. I can't accept that God would have to sacrifice his only son on the cross. That just seems barbaric. Some people are offended by the humanness of the gospel messengers and how all the people who have ever proclaimed the gospel are sinful human beings who make mistakes. 
why would God entrust his message to flawed people? I can't accept that. Some people are offended by the particularity of the gospel. I can't accept that God would save the whole world through this one first century Jewish dude who lived in this one little place at one little time. That doesn't make sense to me, right? Some people are offended by over-familiarity with the gospel. I've met many a Christian, uh, not a Christian, I've met many a man and woman who were raised in the church and had just enough knowledge of Jesus to be able to write him off. Like, yeah, that can't be true. I'm going to look everywhere else for truth except for in the Bible because I've, I've heard that already. Some people are offended by the gospel's call of repentance. By this idea that you are so sinful that Jesus had to die to forgive you. They say, I, I'm pretty good. I don't need that. I can, I can just be a good person. I don't need the cross. I don't know if any of those scenarios resonate with you. There's probably a bunch more, a bunch more ways that the gospel can offend us. But you see, at whatever point the gospel has offended you, that can be your point of deeper understanding into what the gospel actually is. Okay? Because by nature, Jesus is the rejected one. He is the one that causes offense. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So the very, the very foundation of our faith is laid on the rejection of Jesus and on this offensive idea that Jesus had to die. So there's no way that you can be offended that will ultimately push you away from him unless you don't want to believe. And then, you, then the offense will keep you away. But if you want to believe, if you say, Lord, help me, and you push through the offense and you study the Bible and figure out, you know, what's happening and you pray for guidance, God will give you a deeper faith. God will help you understand the gospel so deeply. And you don't have to worry about all the ways Jesus might turn people off or offend people because you're like, yeah, it's, it's offensive. I've been offended. I can't help it. But actually, in the offense is something beautiful for us. The gospel of Jesus is not just a nice, heartwarming message. It is a bombshell that causes offense, that it's a scandal, it's a stumbling block. For those who don't want to believe, it, it confounds them. For those who have faith and want to believe, it is the most beautiful truth in the world. And we know that um, true faith comes after offense because some of the people in Nazareth who were there, who rejected Jesus originally, ended up becoming his disciples. We know at least his brother James and his brother Jude. They both wrote letters in the New Testament. James was the pastor of a church in Jerusalem. Peter, he wasn't in Nazareth, but Peter, who, who said, no way, you can never die, he came back, he became 
a great leader in the church. He told many about Jesus. Let me close with a really quick story. Um, an Australian YouTuber who I follow once in a while named Glenn Scrivener was talking about this notoriously vulgar rapper, American rapper, who just made an album or made a song, a music video, about uh, basically mocking Jesus on the cross, making fun of it. I think it was, his name was Little Nass or something. Um, and here's what Glenn Scrivener said on this, on this one-minute video. He said, God cannot be mocked. And I mean that in its most literal sense. Because the God who descended to the cross cannot descend any lower in terms of scandal or shock or embarrassment. How do you mock something that is already so shameful? How do you subvert something that is itself subversive? The God who has descended all the way into the gutter is the God who is for you. He's got his arms outstretched to you. They were literally nailed open for you. Amen.